everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, everyone. Hey, welcome to Discovery Church. Uh, just in case you are new around here, Discovery is, is really designed for two kinds of people. The first kind, uh, uh, I guess you would call them church people, people who are in the habit of being part of a church, which for us doesn't just mean that you come on a Sunday, but you're actually involved in what we were just talking about, the very fabric of what makes a church, service and helping others and teaching our kids and ourselves growing in our own faith. And so if that's you and you are newer to us, you're exactly the kind of person that we are welcoming. And the other person that we equally welcome is the person who's not in the habit of going to church. And maybe that's you today as well. Maybe you're not in the habit of going to church. You consider yourself a very spiritual person. You're like, I really take seriously the idea that there's a God and I'm trying to figure out what that's like and the implications of my life. But also it might be that you're not in the habit of going to church and you don't really think much about the spiritual realm. Discovery was created, was launched uh, for you as well. And at this church, you are as welcome as a regular church person. The reason I bring that up, well, I guess there's a few reasons, but we are in a sermon series in the Bible in the book of Acts And the guy we're looking at today, we're in the 14th chapter of Acts. For those of you kind of jumping in, we're about halfway through this series. Man, the guy that we're looking at today, the Apostle Paul, that was exactly the two kinds of people he was trying to appeal to when he spoke. He wanted to help long-term religious people understand who Jesus was and how to follow Jesus. And he wanted to help irreligious people or people who are curious about spiritual things but weren't necessarily church people. He wanted to help them. And what was fascinating about Paul is the way he was able to do that both at the same time. Now, I don't know how well Discovery does that, but that's what we are trying to do is to help the churched and the unchurched person both understand Jesus. This guy, Paul, we first met him about five weeks ago in Acts chapter 9. He was a, I guess you would describe him as a religious leader. Back then, the the word they used for him meant he was a Pharisee, which meant that he had memorized a ton of Bible. Those of you who are church people, have you ever been like in a small group or something, and there's always that one guy or that one woman, they know a lot of Bible, just kind of annoying, isn't it? Can we be honest? It's a bit irritable where you're like, I think it's like in the Psalms and you say something and they're like, oh, that's Psalm 23, 7. And you're like, is it though? Is it though? That was Paul. He just knew so much Bible. But also the thing about Paul is he was phenomenally zealous to the point of being violent. Paul was mad, passionate about people getting it just right to follow God. Acts chapter 9, Paul's actually on the war path to stamp out this new movement of Jesus followers. He was highly suspicious of Jesus and Jesus followers. So Paul was using violence, physical violence and threats of death to stamp out these people when Jesus himself met him uh, on the road to Damascus. And so then Paul became a convert. And you know, all that Bible knowledge stuck with him and all that zeal stuck with him and all that violence, just Jesus healed him of all of that violence. And he became this incredible guy 
using all of the zeal to help people understand who Jesus was. And when Paul was converted in Acts chapter 9, God made three promises to Paul. Promise number one, Paul would be an instrument of God to carry the gospel all around the known world. Promise number two, Paul, more than anyone else, would reach unchurched people with the gospel. In the Bible terms, it was called Gentiles. So if you think about everyone back then who was a follower of God was Jewish, then it was Romans and Greeks and anyone who wasn't Jewish. Second promise was, Paul, you're going to extend the good news of God way beyond God's people. And then the third promise, uh, boy, this is a money-back guarantee for Paul. God said, you are going to suffer like crazy when you do the first two things. Oh, sorry, note the second promise, I totally missed it. Not only was he going to reach Gentiles, he was going to reach highly influential people, kings and leaders, and then the third promise, he would suffer greatly for doing it. And so today's chapter, we're going to read a whole chapter today. What we will see in today's chapter is God fulfills all three promises, all three promises. He, he begins his journey, he reaches Gentiles and influential Roman people, and boy, does Paul suffer like crazy when he does it. Today, uh, we are kicking into Paul's first missionary journey. This trip lasted six or eight months or so, and he was on foot. Those of you who keep some kind of a steps count, maybe you have a, some kind of Fitbit or something, man, Paul, I just can't imagine the amount of steps. Over the life of Paul, with all of the different trips he took to proclaim the gospel, scholars say that Paul traveled over 10,000 miles on foot. Yeah, that, that, that walk you did around Sprague Lake, yeah, good luck, good luck with that. Okay, Paul had a plan. He didn't just willy-nilly go anywhere and do whatever he wanted. He actually followed a plan. The first thing he did was try to figure out where has God already gone? Where is God leading me? It was phenomenal to me how in tune Paul was with God's Holy Spirit. And we'll see that in this passage as well. Once he dialed in, he's like, okay, I think the Spirit's leading me here. There would be occasions... There'd be occasions where the religious leaders would say to Paul, we don't think God's leading you there. And Paul would say, yes, he is. Uh, there's one particular occasion, the elders in Ephesus, a beloved friends, friends of Paul, they're begging him, don't go, you're going to suffer, don't do it. And Paul says, I know I'm going to suffer, God's calling me to go, and he would go. Then there'd be other times where Paul and the religious leaders would pray together and they would say, don't go, and Paul's like, that's from the Lord. Isn't that the challenge? I mean, when you're trying to listen to God, isn't that the challenge? What is God saying? And is God speaking to me through my community of faith? Or are my very well-meaning people, are they well-meaning and they love me, but they're not hearing the Lord and I'm hearing the Lord, I have to do it. I find that to be a tremendous challenge as well. So first, Paul would hear from the Lord and then he'd show up in a town and he'd like, okay, where's the nearest church? Paul would just ask around, where's the church? And in that book of Acts, they called it the synagogue. And the first thing he would do is proclaim the gospel to already believers, already believers in God. He was trying to help Jewish people discover Jesus. And more often than not, it did not go well for Paul when he did that. He would go into a synagogue. And you might be thinking to yourself, how can Paul as a visitor visit a church service and take it over? 
How does that work? Okay, just a show of hands, but this is probably more for those of you who are church people. Have you ever been on a church mission trip to a developing nation like Haiti or Costa Rica or Kenya or something like that? Who here? Yeah, me too. I've been on a number of these. Let me just talk about my experience when I go to Haiti or when I go to Kenya. I roll up to a church. I'm a complete stranger. Nobody knows me. It's not surprising. I stand out just a little, because uh, I'm not so much white as translucent, is what my family would say. Like, I'm, I'm beyond white to translucent. But basically, any visitor, wh- you know, whether you're Haitian or whether you're white, it, when you're in Kenya, you can be a Kenyan visiting from out of town, or you can be on a mission trip from out of town. At some point in the service, they will invite you to stand up and give a word from the Lord. Hands up if this has ever happened to you. A number of us. Hands up if you didn't realize you were going to sing, and then they said, now Steve is going to sing us a song. Mortifying. Mortifying. I've, done, I've had this happen. What do you mean I'm going to sing a song? No audition? Are you even interested that I can sing? No. doesn't matter to them. This is a normal cultural thing. Now, there's three kinds of people in these church services. There's people, uh, the first kind are embarrassed, right? where you stand up as fast as you can. You, thank you so much. My name's Steve. Glad to be here. And then you just sit down. Oh, thank God that was over. You take your pulse, put on your oxygen mask, right? That's the first kind of person. Second kind of person, you're like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. And you stand up and you say, hi, my name's Steve. And here's, here's my people and we're here. And we're just so honored to be with you today. Thank you so much. And then you sit down. Piece of cake, nothing to it. The third kind of person is the one we're all suspicious of. They were born for this moment. They were waiting for this day. Have you ever been in one of these services and they just have a word from the Lord, but it's not one word, it's many words and there's no end to the words and it's on and on and on. And for the love of God, why do we let visitors say anything they want, right? Have you, have you ever been in, this is why when you go to Haiti or Kenya, the church services go three or four hours, freaking visitors who don't know how to stop. They're just talking and this is what Paul did. Paul would go into a synagogue and they know he's a Pharisee, he's a religious leader. This guy knows as much Bible or more as anyone. And they say, we have a visitor today. We have Paul and Barnabas. Paul, do you want to have a greeting? And Paul's like, greeting, nothing. Let's roll. And so what you see is Paul will then do one of two things. He will either quote their scriptures to them or he will tell their history to them and show them how Jesus is the fulfillment of it. And then sometimes that goes well, sometimes that does not go well. More often than not, does not go well. It's very difficult for a religious person who's been following God for so long to hear that we've been doing it wrong for so long. Isn't it? It's very threatening. Maybe you're a, a follower of Jesus like I am, and you've been a follower of Jesus for so long. And you're looking at the times and the culture, and you're reading your Bible, you're trying to figure out what's right, what's wrong. Something I've always believed is true. Can that be true? And so when Paul would preach to Jewish people, they were almost always threatened. But he would use their scriptures or their history to do so. Then he would leave the synagogue, and the next thing he would do, he'd find anywhere where the general public hung out. These are what in the Bible they call the Gentiles, Roman citizens, people with a Greek heritage, anyone who's not Jewish, people who are not accustomed to the Jewish religion and they're not accustomed to Jesus Christ. Oftentimes he would go to a local market. They're called the Agora in the Bible where people are like buying and selling things and oftentimes there'd be Roman philosophers standing on a soapbox. Honestly, I mean, honestly, not that unlike Pearl Street in Boulder. There's street performers and there's weird street preachers and all kinds of people, and Paul would mix it up there. What's fascinating to me is he would change his message based on the audience. 
These people had no interest in the Jewish Bible. He never even mentioned it. They had no interest in Jewish history. He didn't even bring it up. He would quote to them their own poets. It, it would be like saying, you know that song by Taylor Swift, Love Story? You know that song? Uh, let me tell you about God. Uh, he would, so, so those of you who know your Bibles, you might remember Paul has a phrase, in him we live and move and have our being. Do you know that phrase? Uh, this is a, one of those more interactive days. You're going to get your work out. Hands up if you've been around church for a while, you know that phrase in the Bible. In him we live and move and have our being. That is not Paul writing Bible. That's Paul quoting a poet of Zeus. Paul is saying, your own poet says to you, in him we live and move and have our being. I know who the him is, Paul says. Let me tell you about that guy, him. And then Paul proceeds to talk about Jesus. What I love about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Paul really models this for us, is the gospel helps us manage two things in our life, our worries and our hopes. Our worries and our hopes. And Paul was the maestro of helping people understand where Jesus Christ comes into their worries and how Jesus Christ makes their hopes better. Now, today, if you're not a follower of Christ, or, or maybe you, you are, but you've not really been a part of church, or, or, man, you have faithfully followed God for decades now, I, I just have two questions. I'm going to invite you to take these questions away when we leave today and just have a think about these. Number one, what are you worried about? I mean, I'm talking right now, what's on your heart and mind that has you spinning? I'm worried about my dad. I'm, I'm actually really worried about my dad. And the more I email him and interact with him, the more worried I get. You know how sometimes when you get worried and you get close to the worry, the worry goes away, but then other worries, you get close to the worry and the worry gets worse. And I have found incredible hope in casting my cares upon the Lord. The, the frustrating thing is it's not a one and done. It's not like, oh, well, I've cast my cares on the Lord, took care of that. It's an ongoing process of worry. What are you worried about today? Jesus Christ enters into our worries. And he doesn't always, whatever situation you're worried about, he doesn't always take it away, but he does make it manageable because he gives you the power to face it and go through it. It's really remarkable. What are you hoping for? As you look at the next six months to 12 months of your life, if you just... Say, okay, by Christmas or by next summer, what are my hopes for my life? Jesus comes into your hopes. Jesus, uh, now, just in case you're wondering, I, I don't want to misrepresent Jesus. Jesus doesn't always give us what we want. I, I think that's the temptation, particularly in this culture. We are so accustomed to getting what we want. I ordered some mechanical pencils on Amazon and they were supposed to arrive between 10 and 2 and they arrived at 3. I, I should have hit the roof. One hour late? What is this? 
And we're just, we, we're in a culture where more and more and more of our culture has been customized and sorted out to give us more and more of what we want. And if we're not careful in this culture, we can just say, oh great, Jesus will just supersize what I want. That's not what I'm trying to say. Sometimes Jesus comes into our hopes and absolutely revolutionizes them. In other words, sometimes we hope for something way too small. Uh, for example, I, I know people, last weekend, Lisa and I were at a fundraiser for an organization called Dreammakers. Dreammakers reaches out to kids when they turn 18 and they are kicked out of the foster care system. So they're 18, black trash bag over their shoulder, no parents, no support system, no one cares for them, and they're legally an adult. And then Brian and Julie Mavis step in with their team, many of their team being former foster kids, and they say, what do you need? Uh, Dreammakers is essentially, um, um, what's the miracle network for the kids? Um, oh, my brain's gone blank. Make a wish, thanks. Because I wasn't continuing the sermon until someone said it. I mean, we just would have stood here, stared at each other awkwardly. The Make-A-Wish Foundation, Dream Makers is Make-A-Wish for 18-year-old kids out of the foster system so they can go to college, so they can go to trade school, so they can get their first ever laptop, so they can learn how to balance a budget, whatever they need. Um, what God did with Julie Mavis is change what she hoped for. Whatever she was hoping for, God massively expanded. And now what Julie hopes for is that every kid aging out of the foster care system in the United States has an advocate and resources to get through life. That's pretty amazing hope. So when I tell you that Jesus will come into your hopes, I guess I should say for some of you, you might want to cross your fingers just in case Jesus changes what you hope for. Uh, he will happily rearrange your life. Okay, so this is the passage we're going to read, and we're just going to do something. We're going to read the whole chapter start to finish as we see Paul follow this pattern. Shows up to a new town, goes to the Jewish uh, synagogue, preaches the gospel, uh, then goes to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish, preaches the gospel, has uh, some trials and tribulations, shakes it off, and does it again. Here we go. Acts 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue, and there they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lycononium cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame, and he'd been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking, and Paul looked directly at him, and he saw that he had faith to be healed, and he called out, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in human form, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Let's just pause. Return of the Jedi, Ewoks, C-3PO. All right. 
Verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons. He's provided you with plenty of food and he fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. And they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and he went back into their city. And the next day he and Barnabas left for Derbe. And they preached the gospel in that city and they won a large number of disciples and then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Acts chapter 14. You know, there's a lot here we could dig out. Uh, I really just want to focus on two things. Um, the thing we're just going to mention but not dig into is that, that Acts 14, 19 through 20. I'm just going to read it to us again because the problem with the Bible of the authors of Scripture is how wildly understated they can be. Luke writes, then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Like, did, did he have like a stoning hangover? I had some people in from out of town this week and I took a couple of them fly fishing on Thursday morning. We drove up to Estes Park and we just did like three hours of fly fishing and I helped them get into the water and I got into the water. It had been a while. The water was up to about my knees, maybe a little over my knees and maybe we fished for two or three hours and then the next day I was like, man, oh. So, you know, Paul... dragged outside, stoned to the point where they think he was dead, and then he just got up and went back into the city. Like, like the, the scripture, how, how do we say it? In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, if you're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, you will physically suffer for it. It's just a guarantee. Now, God warned Paul of this when he became a convert, and so I love at the end of this where Paul and Barnabas say to the disciples, they just said, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And I just wish to point out the two words that trip us, trip us up are the words many and hardships. Many and hardships. Um, I do not believe it's healthy to look for hardships. I think there's something quite sick about that, that kind of martyr complex, that need to die, right? But, but the problem is we do live in a very opposite culture to Paul. Paul expected hardships, and so when they came upon him, he was not surprised at all. He welcomed them. He did not look for them, but he did not shy away from them, and he welcomed them. Whereas I think we are conditioned, even as Christians, I think our cultural conditioning seeps into our faith where we are conditioned to avoid hardships at all costs. I, 
I'm often mindful of the amazing book by Dr. Paul Brand. The, the book uh, was first called, the, the title of the book was Pain, the Gift Nobody Wants. That was the name of the book, and no one bought the book. So then they, the publisher renamed it The Gift of Pain. I don't, I don't think that made it fly off the shelves. But Dr. Paul Bram was a Christian missionary in India in the 1950s. He specialized in people with leprosy. And he said the one thing that people with leprosy crave more than anything else is pain. They wish they could feel pain because if they could just feel pain, they would not get into trouble. I'll let you make your own connections there. And Dr. Paul Brand moved to the United States after living as a missionary in India for decades. And he said, my experience in the United States is the one thing that Christians are trying to avoid at all costs is pain. So he wrote the book, The Gift of Pain. How can pain be such a gift? I think we trip up on these words, many and hardships. And of course, as we talk about many hardships, I suspect many of us in this room are well acquainted with many hardships. I don't think you get through a few decades in life without getting some licks, right? So many of us are acquainted with many hardships, uh, but we should just note that in Paul's case, the hardships are directly suffered because of the cost of sharing the gospel. I, I think probably for most of us, our hardships come because life happens. I'm not suggesting that one is better or worse than the other, but I do think it's important to realize that Paul suffered for the gospel, and I think we suffer because life happens, sometimes because of poor choices, but less frequently because of the gospel. But whatever the hardship, what we know is just in the way that God can come into our worries, and God can come into our hopes, God can come into our hardships. And that's where I find a lot of my hope, is that I don't face hardship alone. And I don't face hardship on my own strength. As long as I have been a follower of Jesus, I have never once had to figure out a hardship on my own. I have the power of Jesus Christ with me, and I have God's people. Jesus has given me two great gifts, his Holy Spirit and his people, to help me through hardships. So, if you are facing a hardship today and it's more than you can bear, you know that thing that sometimes goes around church, God will never give you more than you can bear? What's, the, what's that called? Bull crap? Is that what it's called? I think that's as crass as I can get from a pulpit and still keep preaching up here. God doesn't give us more than we can bear. Have you seen life? No, much better news. We often have more than we can bear, but we do not bear it alone. God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. And God's people are ready, rolled up with their sleeves to help us. It's unbelievable. If you're not a follower of Christ, it's one reason to follow Christ. So that we don't face our hardships alone, but also what God does with our hardships is this most amazing thing, is God does not often remove our hardships. How many of our prayers are, God, please remove this hardship? God does something, uh, how would you say, less satisfying but more powerful. God redeems our hardships. The same guy, Paul, the same guy that got stoned and beaten up and just keeps on going, 
He wrote to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, where Paul says, Praise be to the Father of all comfort who comforts us in our times of trials so that we can comfort others with the comfort we received. That's the second amazing thing that God does with hardships. The final thing I want to point out, and maybe this is another reminder. So for those of you who are interested in maybe doing some work from this passage this week, the first work is, what am I worried about? What am I hopeful for? And what's God got to say about it? You can just go out this week and just start asking God, what am I worried about right now? And what are you doing in those worries? How do I cast my cares upon you? And then the second one is, what are, what are my hopes? And are my hopes aligned with your hopes, Jesus? What do you hope for, Jesus? What do you want me to do with my life? Be careful with that prayer. Maybe have your fingers crossed some kind of exit. Make sure you know where the exits are when you pray that prayer because if Jesus answers that prayer for you, hold on. But the second piece of homework is to try to notice what God's Spirit is doing this week. Now, this is difficult. This is the compelling thing about Acts how the Holy Spirit was doing all the leading. Sometimes Paul and Barnabas pray and God says to get out of danger. Sometimes Paul and Barnabas pray and God says go into danger. But what's happening again and again is they're simply following the Spirit and then they're acting and joining in. Uh, Will Willimon, a commentator on the book of Acts, he simply says nothing begins in Acts unless the Holy Spirit begins it. What an amazing way to live your life. I find that to be very challenging, to only begin things if the Holy Spirit has already begun it. It's very challenging, but that could be something we can try this week too, is to pay attention to what God is doing. Huh. Uh, this last week, I had uh, coffee with a friend of mine who's a pastor. His name's Ron Johnson. He pastors right here in Denver. He's pastored here in urban Denver for decades. He's planted churches. Some of you might have been familiar with Pathways Church in Denver in the 90s and 2000s. Uh, that was Ron. Currently, the church he pastors is Restoration Community Church. It's right near DU campus. Ron loves to reach urban people for Jesus, and he loves nothing more than to reach unchurched people for Jesus. That just is what gets Ron up every day. So, okay, COVID hits in 2020. Restoration Community Church building is closed. We can't meet. What are we going to do? Most churches went online. Ron just uh, basically ordained every small group leader and said, well, congratulations, now you're a pastor. And they moved to a simple church model. They call it simple church. And if you're a small group leader in Ron's church, you have to share your faith with somebody who doesn't know Jesus th at least three times a week. He has these goals. And then you have to shepherd those people, encourage them to share their faith, and then th lower the threshold of baptism. That was kind of the big simple thing. Share your faith, help others share their faith, baptize anyone who wants to, let's go. Now, I happen to be on Ron's board and it's been a real treat. One of the reasons I'm on Ron's board is so I can learn to see what the Holy Spirit is doing. I had lunch with Ron, uh, breakfast with, uh, excuse me, coffee with Ron this week. I don't know why the meal matters, but it was coffee. It was coffee. And I was like, Ron, how's it going? We hadn't caught up in several months. And he said, it's the craziest thing. Our simple churches crossed the threshold into refugee community. And the gospel is spreading like wildfire through the refugee community in Denver. I said, what's happening, what's God doing in the Sunday services at Restoration Community? He says, not much. But we've baptized 1,800 refugees since January. 
And those people we baptized, we taught them how to share the gospel and they don't know any better. They're just sharing the gospel with their friends and the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Ron said, it's like a revival. I can't keep up with what God's doing. And what's happening now, Ron said, is kind of like the Asbury revival. He says, people are calling me, asking me how to do it and I don't know what to tell them because I don't know quite how it's happening. I'm just trying to keep up with what the Spirit is doing. He says, I've had people fly in and they're like, okay, Ron, tell us what this, okay, so first you form simple churches and then you, and Ron's like, all I can tell you is people who share the gospel, we promote them to leaders. People who don't, we don't. And then the Spirit's moving and there it is. I found that so compelling. And so the last challenge, and I'll invite and the team up now is what if this week you go in the power of the spirit in your weakness and your discomfort and you proclaim the good news now I'll play my hand Ron is an outgoing kind of guy and he's a preacher it's very comfortable for him to share his faith with somebody you might be more of a quiet thoughtful person not quite sure how you would talk about it and so what you're doing right now is saying well I would opt out of that yeah, I, I get that I get that. But what if you work with somebody or what if you're related to somebody who has hopes and fears and worries that Jesus could help? What if God has put you in that relationship just to gently tell them in your own way? We can be tempted to think that all of this came naturally to Paul, just showing up introducing himself at a synagogue, taking over, preaching the gospel, going into the marketplace and standing on a soapbox and declaring faith through the poets of Zeus. Sure, on the one hand, Paul was an intellectual genius. There's no question. Sure, on the one hand, the Holy Spirit was so visceral and palpable back then to Paul. Sure. But I like how Paul describes himself, 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence, eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and great fear and trembling. And so that's how we can leave this place today, in weakness and great fear and trembling. If you're a follower of Christ, Maybe you would consider who God has put in your life to share the hope and share how God has come into your worries if you're not a follower of Christ and you'd like to become one today. Then after we dismiss, after our communion time, you can come right down front. I'll be down here. There'll be others down here. And we would love to help you connect to the God of the universe who loves you. Meanwhile, as we prepare to worship, let's stand. Those of us who are able, let's stand and let's sing. Let's sing.